This is R.J. Rushdoony, Easy Chair number 417, September the 23rd, 1998. Tonight I have with me Douglas Murray, Susan Burns, and Mark Rushdoony. And our format is going to be a, uh, quite a bit different tonight. Over the years, and as I read off the number 417 as the number of the easy chair, I realized some of you have been asking this from the earliest days. And I give an oral account, if not a written one, on the origins of Chalcedon, what led me to uh, start it. And uh, Douglas, Susan, and Mark will help me clarify that uh, history with their interruptions. Now, an important fact that led to the founding of Chalcedon was the fact that I was a foreigner, an Armenian, the child of immigrants born fairly soon after their arrival in New York City. I was born there, although at six weeks we came to California. Now, as a foreigner, I had a very different standard uh, to compare the United States to. The attitude of the foreigners I knew, both Armenians and others, was very, very appreciative of the United States. In fact, I know when I was growing up, many of these people, whether they came from Northern or Central Europe, were often uh, distressed that Native Americans did not appreciate this country uh, sufficiently. Coming from a foreign background, a world of uh, extensive controls, this was a remarkable country, gloriously free. And you must remember that in those days, in the uh, 20s, the number of uh, regulations controlling Americans were minimal. The basic control was Christian. Most people went to church, or at least in much of the country, most did. They were very much under the influence of the teachings of Scripture. As a result, we were still a country then with a Christian background. In the early grades, whether in uh, California or later in the 20s after 25, in Detroit, Michigan, a teacher had only to refer to some aspect of biblical teaching in passing by way of uh, confirming something uh, that uh, she was teaching in order to have instant recognition on the part of the students. Everybody knew what she was talking about. I don't think that would be true today. So we had a Christian character, but it was apparent that this was beginning to fade. 
I had the additional advantage that my father had gone to Scotland early in this century to do his graduate studies at New Mound College and the University of Edinburgh. As a result, he had acquired a very great appreciation for <coughs> Scottish culture. And as a result, became aware of the theonomic background of Scottish culture. I know that in 1987, on a trip to England, to Oxford, to speak at a conference, there were a couple of uh, Scots there from a remote village both of them uh, veterans of the British Army who came to me in some amusement and said, we've learned from this trip here to these, this conference that uh, your ideas about God's law are highly controversial. And uh, they said, they're not to us. Everybody in our village and other villages round about believes, obeys, and practices the law of God. So it's very different in uh, out-of-the-way Scotland and in the cities. I'm sure this is true elsewhere in Europe. Well... I became aware of the drift away from a biblical faith and culture very early. It was uh, not pleasant to see, but it was a grim reality. With World War II, uh, the drift became a departure. As a result, I recognized there was a need for some kind of reawakening, something to alert people. My earliest feelings were that maybe I could be a writer and uh, take on the task that way. In those days, and in fact, until after I started Chalcedon in 1965, there were uh, no comparable organizations among Christians. There were the churches and their institutions some Christian schools underway, but nothing more. Now we have all kinds of uh, Christian newsletters and uh, study groups. I thought hard and long about starting something like Chalcedon. From my student days, on. At first, I was not altogether sure what its form would take. I thought of some kind of academic teaching center. I've never abandoned that idea, but I settled with a writing ministry, something in the way of a publication that would go out to interested parties. I began to think very, very seriously about starting such a thing 
when after my seminary I went to an Indian reservation to be a missionary there. I felt a real calling to the work because in the 1930s a number of uh, Christian Indians were half what they were in 1890, 40 to 50 years earlier. So that the drift among Americans was also affecting a group like the Indians. I felt that if I could make the faith plain to the American Indians who still basically spoke their native tongues and English was a second language, I could then make it clear to anyone. In those years on the reservation, I often thought of Nevada as the place to center uh, Chalcedon when I was able to begin. My reason for that was that uh, I was aware that California was becoming an increasingly uh, regulated state like most states in the Union. More and more of uh, a person's life was controlled. Whereas in Nevada, there were very few controls. However, I did settle on California and never regretted it. Now, basic to the idea of Chalcedon was that it was not enough for a person or a culture to accept Christ. They had to be surrendered to Christ and to Christianity, totally controlled by the faith. And of course, this began with biblical law. If you are governed by the faith, it means you are governed by the law of that faith. This, of course, met with resistance from Christians. I found very early before I reached the Indian Reservation when I had no more than stopped to visit a friend, a pastor, an older man than when I preached for him there was some outrage in that I mentioned two things, God's law and victory. Somehow, both constituted a terrible uh, heresy. You were supposed to be a martyr for the faith. It was supposed to lead only to defeat, but you clung to it all the same. And I thought that was terrible. Well, I did pull in my horn, so to speak, on that issue for some time until I was prepared to come out full force with the meaning of theonomy, which I was ready to do uh, late in the 70s, uh, 60s and early in the 70s, as I wrote the first volume of Institutes of Biblical Law. The reaction to it was, of course, immediate and intense, both in favor and against it. So the issue was out in the open. I was now something of a 
marked man, which didn't bother me in the least. But it did trouble some people who were interested because it meant such an unremitting hostility if they adopted the position to any degree. The first few years from uh, 65 to about 71 or 72, I worked alone, didn't have the funds for anyone else on the staff. The first issue of the Chalcedon Report went out in uh, September or October of 1965. It was a single mimeographed page. Grace Flanagan, who was very much totally in favor of Christian Reconstruction, uh, prepared, ran off, and mailed the copies of issue number one. We ran off 60. We had 51 or two on our original mailing list. For many years, she uh, cut the stencil and mimeographed the report. We quickly went on to two, three, and four pages. And it was in 71 or 72 that we adopted a printed format. The publication of that uh, Chalcedon Report very early uh, made me a marked man. I was really amazed at the hostility that it incurred. It seems strange to me that anyone could doubt that God, having given the law and having given over a very high percentage of the whole of the Bible to the law, with the rest more or less as a commentary on it, was not in favor of its practice, yes. Did, did, God, did they think that God simply submitted this to man for our consideration? What, what well, they thought was, it, it was for the government of the Jewish tribes. And uh, when the Jewish uh, era of biblical history, the Old Testament, ended, then it was invalid no longer applicable. That was their stock attitude. And of course, their interpretations of uh, Matthew 5, 17 following uh, where our Lord in the Sermon on the Mount speaks so strongly of the eternal validity of the law they had all kinds of fantastic interpretations uh, to eliminate the validity of that text. So it was really a startling exercise in antinomianism. And uh, in a sense, I knew I would get hostility I knew they would not agree because I knew their position. I knew what was in the Schofield Bible and how large a percentage believed it from uh, cover to cover insofar as its notes were concerned. Mm -hmm. And I knew how many modernists uh, prevailed in church after church and they had their hostility 
to God's law. God's law was highly unpopular in the church. Could we, could we back up a little bit? Yes. You're already in 65 in the start of the Chalcedon yes. report. Um, fairly soon after you were out of uh, seminary in, what was it, 44? Uh, 43 or 44, I think. Okay, you went to the, the reser Indian Reservation yes. in northwestern, northeastern Nevada. Yes. You were there till 53. Yes. And, and then you took, you pastored two churches in Santa Cruz. Yes. Until 1962. Now, in 1962, you went to work for, was it the Volcker Fund? Yes. Or was uh, that part of the Pew the Pew uh, Trust or, or no uh, it was the uh, Volker Foundation T could you tell us about that that because that sure you went from there to um, Los Angeles and, and really Calcedon uh, full-time surely uh, the Volker uh, Foundation had been founded by uh, this businessman engaged in uh, acting as a middleman in the sale of uh, business and office supplies in the way of furnishings. He would uh, contract with the producers, whether of uh, counters or desks or uh, floor coverings to be their exclusive distributor. And for many years, whether linoleum or carpet or whatever, uh, all were handled by the Volcker Fund and all the advertising you saw for that corporation uh, were put into the media by the Volcker Fund. It was a very successful, very wealthy fund. As a result, they accumulated millions. The interesting thing is that uh, young Volker went to work with uh, virtually no money, and uh, in his teens, when he started this business, and by the time he had uh, come of age, he was already a tremendous and powerful success. Subsequently, he added uh, his nephew, Hal Luno, uh, to the staff. And the two of them more or less ran the company until Volker's death. Volker, when he died, wanted the money spent to further a Christian and free market causes. He, during his lifetime, had given millions to certain universities and to various medical causes. He, uh, anticipated the entire fund being used for such causes, but he knew how very quickly all foundations that had a great deal of money were taken over. So he set up a stipulation that his foundation had to be dissolved within so many years and all the remaining assets given to various groups because he did not want it to become a champion of the left. Of course, this is what happened to the Pew Trust. And uh, Pew created the wealthiest trust, perhaps, in the United States. Goes into the billions and is now very much controlled by the left. Well, 
the Volcker Fund was to have been uh, dissolved not too long after I went there. I was taken aboard as an independent consultant towards starting some kind of school that would be a graduate school, training uh, men in uh, theological and historical studies. I think the name was something like uh, Center for American Studies. But at any rate, the uh, formation of that school was begun with the formation of a library, and I began buying up uh, thousands of books that were relevant here. And even Cornelius Van Til was sounded out as to whether he would come and be the theologian in residence for this school. However, the hostility it incurred was enormous. First, the idea that I was providing the uh, guidance was appalling to all the professors and uh, scholars who had received uh, grants from Volcker, usually grants for uh, work in economics from a free market perspective. I recall being shown by my friend Ivan Birley a stack of letters several inches high that poured in within a matter of days after my part in all this became known, all objecting to... Yes. What? Uh, oh, I see our time is almost over, so please turn your tape over, and we will continue with this easy chair. And I hope you are finding it of interest, because... To me, of course, Chalcedon is very important. I was taken aboard the uh, Volcker Foundation as an independent consultant. This meant they were not accountable for everything I said or did, and I was not accountable for all they said or did. That was the work of Ivan Barely, who was the man who uh, took me in. He had shown an interest some time before, and I received a grant to do further writing on uh, the messianic character of American education from them. I had already written by what standard, my first book in the middle of the 70s, the then Intellectual Schizophrenia, and uh, the uh, found uh, the book on education. Uh, messianic character. Messianic character of American education came out at the very end of 1963. So I had uh, already written those uh, uh, three books. And w while at Volcker, I completed uh, a few others, including with another grad from Volcker when I was dropped from the um, staff, so to speak, the one and the many, but uh, that wasn't published for some several years, though, was no, it? No, it wasn't because we had to publish it, and uh, it was not cheap. The interesting thing is that uh, 
Now that I was on my own, there were those who uh, felt that I would uh, wither and fall by the wayside because I didn't have the financial support. Volker gave me a terminal grant of two or three years funding. And uh, with that, of course, I was able to survive until uh, Calcedon could begin operation. I had already incorporated some time earlier, but uh, the hostility was uh, such that I knew that it was going to be very difficult to start Calcedon. Who would fund it? I was notorious. I know that uh, Thanks to one or two friends, notably Ivan Birley, I had had a review of uh, Intellectual Schizophrenia published in uh, National Review, and a very good one. Later, another was done of Messianic Character of American Education, which was a somewhat left-handed one because Volker was no longer in a position to give money to National Review, perhaps. But uh, at any rate, we were then living in Palo Alto where I was working on my research grant and the money was running out and it was difficult to visualize what was ahead. I hoped that I could find a small church where the demands on my time would be minimal and where I could uh, preach and yet continue writing. Uh, Dorothy and I looked up and down the state of California to see if we could find such a church, and we could not. Then Gary North, who had been staying with us that uh, previous summer because I had gotten him one of the last grants from uh, Volker to do some independent studying, was in a bookstore in Westwood in Los Angeles and met two or three women who had a study group and he urged them to invite me to uh, go down there and speak. So, uh, led by Grace Flanagan, they did. And subsequently, two other groups one in Pasadena and one in Orange County also invited me. But uh, the response I got in Los Angeles, Westwood, was uh, exceptionally good. And uh, the meetings were attended by women, but then on one occasion where it was possible and a number of men were present. And what they said was that they were, as a result of their uh, adoption of a conservative outlook, becoming interested in the Christian faith. They wanted some solid teaching. Most of them were starting to attend one church or another but they were getting nothing of the sort. Would I go down there and hold a class for them? So we moved there with uh, almost no assurance of any support from this handful of people. Uh, 
Grace Flanagan found that a couple of uh, women had an acquaintance with Walter Knott of Knott's Berry Farm. So they took me there and I talked to him and I spoke strongly about Christian education and my work there. And I felt the future of the country required reconstruction beginning in education. He immediately objected. He was an old man. He wanted to win this country politically and to see it uh, return to the standards, the Christian standards he'd known as a boy. Later, when he was no longer in control and had barely survived death, he was in his office cleaning out his desks and bookcases, and he learned that I was there on the premises. He asked me to come in, and he very humbly told me that if he had put the money into Christian schools that he had into politics, the country by this time would be a different country. Well, he put up 1500 to start me off, and Phil Virtue of a furniture manufacturing company put up another 1500 So we had $3,000, enough to keep me going a couple of months. And so we moved down there. It was uh, a movement by faith because I had no way of knowing when uh, the 3000 was exhausted, two months' pay, whether I would be able to make a go of it. After all, it was just a handful of people. Then, of course, a group, uh, as a result of a meeting or two I held before we moved down to keep building up the group, led to some in the uh, Pasadena, San Marino area expressing an interest, and others in uh, uh, Santa Ana. The Santa Ana group was made up of uh, breakaway Episcopalians who were starting an independent Episcopal movement, and while one of their vestrymen could take over the liturgical aspect of the service, I, they hoped, would do the preaching, which I did then and for a few years thereafter until they had grown enough to call a pastor. Well, the move was a dramatic one, it was a move dictated by faith. We had most of the things going by truck. We had, while visiting, uh, signed a lease for a home in Canoga Park. Woodland and Hills. now we were on our way. Woodland Hills. Woodland Hills, you're right, Mark. First of all, Woodland Hills. The interesting thing was that here we were on our way with uh, uh, this was 1965 with two old blue 19 uh, 49 or 1950 Plymouths. They were good cars. Uh, 
Wish I had one now. They would run forever. And uh, we had problems along the way. It was a particularly hot summer day. And uh, the Plymouth, uh, that uh, Dorothy was in together with Gary, uh, boiled quite a bit on the way. But we got there, went into the house, and it was insufferable. The heat had built up all through the day because it was all closed. But we got settled, and uh, I began my work there. So it was uh, quite an effort on Sundays. I would begin at uh, about 10 or thereabouts and continue for an hour, an hour and a half with questions and answers in Westwood at Phil Virtue's office's conference room. Well, weren't you first in Sunday morning, weren't you, in um, Santa Ana? At the Episcopal service? Yes, but then I would go to Santa Ana. Okay. This was at the same time. Okay. I, be I began first at Westwood. Okay. Then I would hold uh, an afternoon service there, and then would drive back, get a bite to eat, and go to uh, San Marino in the evenings, for the services there. So I was doing a great deal of traveling. In fact, I uh, covered a considerable number of miles. Now, the interesting thing about that is that uh, as a result of those meetings, a number of people became uh, Christian and a number started going to uh, area Orthodox Presbyterian churches. Ironically, in spite of what I was feeding into those churches, and I did have trouble later with the OPC, early on there were one or two men who were highly critical of me because I was laboring on the Sabbath with all that driving. So, <laughs> even at such a silly point as that, I was not immune to criticism. Meanwhile, as I have indicated, the Chalcedon Report was being put out in mimeograph form by uh, Dorothy and Grace, with Grace doing the bulk of the work. Her children, both of them, were also involved in stuffing the envelopes. The first month it was only 50, but after that it was amazing how quickly it went into several hundred all over the country. People would copy uh, an issue, mimeograph, or Xerox it, and mail it to friends across country, and we would get requests from them, and we began to get contributions from them as well. So we now had these three meetings and uh, our mailing all bringing in uh, some contributions. I was therefore able uh, in the early 70s to add a man to the staff, uh, Gary North. Now, I had found a very fine job for Gary as an economist, which was his field, with a foundation for economic education. However, he became dissatisfied, and with some grounds, 
uh, on a number of uh, issues, and he left. He went to uh, major coin uh, selling operation in Southern California, but uh, felt before long that uh, their operation uh, had serious flaws morally. So he uh, quit his job there. So he was jobless, and meanwhile, he was married to our daughter Sharon. So I invited him to join us at Chalcedon. Shortly thereafter, we began to publish in the early 70s in a printed four-page format, which was later expanded to eight pages. Uh, about that time, a year or two after Gary was brought on board, I invited uh, Greg Bonson, whom I knew from the time he was a child, and I knew his parents well, to join our staff. But it became apparent after a time that Greg's basic concern was academic. And uh, our outlook is uh, one that cuts across subjects. It's to deal not with a particular discipline of study, but the issues of life. So I was able to find a good job for Greg at Reformed Seminary in Mississippi. And then we continued. Well, it became apparent to me that uh, we couldn't continue very long in uh, Canoga Park and then the last couple of years in Woodland Hills where we purchased a home. Our lease expired and uh, the owner of the house was selling it. Well, we therefore bought and did it with the idea and view of moving as soon as we could locate a place in the country. We wanted a center in the country where living costs would be cheap and we could uh, build more readily and expand. Now, where we were, we had a tract house and a good one. Uh, built in uh, 1960 at a cost of $10,000 plus then uh, swimming pool added. Built on a fair-sized lot, incidentally. But that house was increasing in its taxation every year. The saying in the neighborhood was, if you want to live in a better neighborhood, stay put, because the value of the houses is advancing so. I know that before we left, the property tax on our house was $200 a month, 2400 a year, and it was due any time uh, to go up. And in fact, within uh, a few months, they had reassessed every house in, in that area. And on our street, uh, the taxes were between 3800 and 42 a year. Well, that's a lot of money. I didn't feel I could afford it. So we had begun to look all over the state for a place where we could build. 
we finally came because of Dorothy's uh, study of the whole situation to Calaveras County where the tax rate was low and the regulations minimal at that time and not too bad yet. Some of the properties I had examined prior to that were remarkable opportunities, but closed ones. I recall looking at a house in Northern California and not too very far from the grape country, but uh, in the Redwoods, 80 acres. The house had been built early in the 1900s by a very wealthy man. It had uh, a double-walled driveway leading into the house. The uh, walls were six feet or so high and about, oh, 18 inches of dirt between them in which uh, trailing vines had been planted that would overflow the walls and add dramatically to the appearance of the place. It was vacant at the time except for a hippie couple who were living there to watch over the place. It was a stone structure. The basement was a ground floor one. Above that were three stories. It had 21 fair-sized bedrooms, huge rooms on the first floor for a variety of facilities. It was uh, built of stone. A person could have uh, held a small college there because in the back was a huge uh, carriage barn. Uh, the uh, building was two or three stories high also, very solidly built, stone construction uh, for about a floor and a half, and it was very easily alterable into uh, a major uh, building. However, the zoning laws permitted nothing except a single-family residence in a house with 21 bedrooms. Please turn your tape over at this time. It's the end right here. We should, it's the end. Or rather, turn to tape two, and we shall continue.